everyone. We've got some exciting news. Uh, we're going to be doing a live show. Woohoo! Uh, so, Sabrina, do you want to tell them where they can find it? Yeah, so we're going to be having our live show on November 8th at the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library at 6.30 p.m. If you want to come check it out and hear some fun stories that didn't quite make it into the 150 series, uh, you can RSVP on Eventbrite. We'll have the link to that on our website, onegreathistory.wordpress.com. Hopefully we'll see you there. Bonjour et bienvenue, uh, One Great History. Hello and welcome to One Great uh, 150, our exploration of 150 years or so of Winnipeg history. I'm Sabrina. <laughs> and I'm Alex. <laughs> and we're here with friend and producer Nick. Episode 14. Yeah. We're close. We're almost done. Super close to the end. Um, so a couple episodes back, you had me guess the year we'd be starting in. <laughs> A joke that um, no one I pitched it to liked. Which is why I'm going to do it again. Hey! <laughs> With the same three clues. Is Garnet Coulter's mayor again? Okay. One of the top singles is, Just touch the harp gently, my pretty Louise. <laughs> by by who? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. Um, the mayor of Winnipeg doesn't exist. And Winnipeg is nine years removed from its biggest ever flood. Would you like to guess what year we're in? Winnipeg's mayor doesn't exist. Mm -mm. So that would have to be in, like, what, the 1850s? Real close. 1870. Hey, that's <laughs> on the right track. So you might be asking yourself, Sabrina, why are we in 1870? This is the 14th episode. <laughs> no, we're going back and we're starting over from the beginning, right? That's right. And it's another 15 episodes from here. That's right. Um, no, we're not going to be here too long. But a lot of what happens in today's episode actually is going to rest on an event that happens in 1870. And probably not the other events we're thinking of that we talked about in our last episode covering the 1860s and 70s. Different stuff, I think. So, yeah, do you have any guess? Do you remember what happened in 1870? I'm assuming it's going to have something to do with, like, a French Languages Act in the province of Manitoba. Pretty much. It was So it's the passing of the Manitoba Act. Okay, yeah. Which has an, a section in it. Yeah. Regarding French and English language rights. So um, the Manitoba Act... We talked about this all the way back in, like, what, our second episode? Third it's, episode? It's been a while. It's been a while. So it lays down the conditions under which Manitoba joins Canada. Mm -hmm. um, this is, of course, negotiated by Louis Riel and his compatriots, our friends from way back in our Goulet episode. And it's actually just one section that we're concerned with. And actually, it's only two sentences long. Oh, okay. But they're, like, old-timey long sentences. So we're not reading them? I am going to read oh, them. Oh, okay. You're, but I'm just warning you because you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Either the English or the French language may be used by any person in the debates of the houses of the legislature, and both those languages shall be used in the respective records and journals of those houses. And either of those languages may be used by any person or in any pleading or process in or issuing from any court of Canada established under the British North America Act 1867, or in or from all or any of the courts of the province. The acts of the legislature shall be printed and published in both those languages." Okay, so I promise we're not going to read any more stuff no. like that today. Um, I mean, that wasn't that bad. No, but <laughs> to summarize in plain language, though, that that's basically saying that either French or English can be used in the legislature or in the courts, um, and that all laws are to be printed in both languages. Okay. So that's, that's our kind of basis of language equality in Manitoba. Um, but in 1890, Manitoba passes the Official Language Act. Mm -hmm. So you might notice there's no S, no languages. 
because mm-hmm. this is a law that establishes English as a or establishes English as the only official language of Manitoba in our legislature and our courts. And that is the status quo for the next like 80 years. It winds up being in the schools as well for a time. We're going to get into the schools for sure. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So with all that out of the way, we can jump ahead through to the 1960s. <laughs> um, Big move forward. Yeah. Here. We've had a bit of a false start here, but um, we can introduce the subject of our episode today. Uh, Georges Ferret. Um, so Ferret is a French Canadian, uh, was a French Canadian of both Métis and Acadian descent. He was an Air Force veteran who had been running an insurance company in St. Boniface since 1948. But more importantly for our episode, he's an activist for Francophone rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spends much of the 1960s campaigning against the, uh, <laughs> the subject of our previous episode, Stephen Juba. In the good old Unicity Agreement. Yes. Um, now, one thing they actually did agree on was that they both hated Metro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then, like, what did he think should happen if not Unicity? Um, he just wanted to keep things the way they were. Okay. So he wanted separate uh, municipalities or, or separate towns, cities, whatever they, they were to be. Okay. So just, like, keep things the way they were. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So he collected a bunch of, like, anti-Metro signatures and stuff. Um, that can't have been hard to do. <laughs> No, probably not. And basically, he's worried that the Francophone voice and the Francophone culture of Manitoba will be diminished if St. Boniface becomes just another part of Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. You know, just a neighborhood as opposed to, like, its own town. With, like, a city hall and its own governance. Yeah, exactly. Right? That, yeah, its it's voice then is, is less if it's just like, oh, we've got a couple of aldermen or whatever, right? Um... Now, he doesn't always seem to have Franco-Manitobans behind him. This is demonstrated by his numerous failed attempts to run for office. (laughs) Oh, no. I feel like we've covered a bunch of people who keep trying to run for office and don't succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, succeed after many tries. (laughs) Juba and Penner, notably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Ferret never does, but he does try. So, in 1960, he's defeated in a run for Alderman. He also, in 63, runs for MP. He's defeated by Margaret Conance. She's kind of an interesting person. We can okay. talk about her at some Another point. Another day. Another day. Um, now, part of this might be because Ferret was part of kind of like an odd fringe party called the Social Credit Party. Um, what does that mean? We don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We'll maybe talk about it in the bonus show. It's okay. like, I, I'll just say for now, they're like very anti-socialist. Okay. That's, that's a big thing for them. But um, they've got their own thing going on. Okay. They don't, I don't think they exist anymore. Um, what's important, basically, is just that a lot of people use these failed campaigns to discredit Ferré, to say that, well, he doesn't really have the people behind him. Yeah, I think I think if you lose a bunch of times, yeah. it's not like a ringing endorsement. Yeah, and especially as he comes to act more and more as a, more and more vocally as a spokesperson for Franco-Manitobans, people are like, well, like, people didn't even vote for him, but... <laughs> Who is this guy? I mean, there are different ways yeah. to have community support, right? Um, and one thing I'll say for Ferret is that when he got it right, he really got it right. Um, and one of those occasions was his idea for a winter festival. Oh, and uh, which winter festival is this? I think you can probably guess. <laughs> what do you think it is? Festival. Yeah, of course. Festival de Voyageur. Um, so this was to be a winter festival celebrating Franco-Manitoban history and culture. And of course, it wasn't his idea alone. There were a bunch of people who worked on festival. Um, but Faré's real contribution was the idea that it should celebrate, like, voyager heritage, mm-hmm. and that it should be kind of historical and very, like, French in this way. Um, 
and I have to say they were pretty clever about how they went about Festival. Yeah. Like they scheduled it during reading week so they could get student volunteers. Oh, that is smart. And they waited until 1970 so they could get centennial funds. So they had been planning it for like a longer, th- how long have they been planning it Since for? Since about 67. Okay. So they just like waited it out basically. Yes. And I'm just like, oh, it's no wonder it succeeded. They're yeah. like, these are planners here. Um, also, it was originally called Festival du slash of Voyager until they realized that English people could probably figure out what do meant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Festival and Voyager are pretty clear either way. Yeah. So Jacques Ferré and his wife Anita are made the festival's uh, official voyageurs, which basically make, makes them the event's like designated spokespeople. Um, so Georges stops shaving. <laughs> to look more like a voyager. <laughs> to look more like a voyager. Um, and in January of 1970, he and his family begin wearing 1800s outfits as often as possible. Just like around town? Yeah, just around town. So they're trying to promote it. They're hoping that it's going to be like an annual event if it goes well, right? So they were specifically dressing, I think, as Jean-Baptiste Lajemodière and Marie-Anne Gaboury. Oh, Louis Ariel's grandparents. Yeah, so they were like some of the first, like, I guess, European-descended or white people in the area. Mm-hmm. I think it's not until later that Festival starts um, really emphasizing, like, indigenous and Métis stories. Um, so they, like, go to the New Year's Eve levy in costume. There's, like, a bunch of pictures of them meeting various prominent figures in their, like, outfits. It's really fun. Um, and in late January, Faré travels east to promote Festival. Um, he meet, even meets Prime Minister Trudeau. Oh, wow. Uh, senior, obviously. What? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't meet Justin when he Just, was a very... Like, tiny baby <laughs> Justin. Um, he even manages to convince one Quebec town to charter a flight to bring guests to Winnipeg for the festival. <laughs> what? Wow. What small town? I didn't write that down. <laughs> so it's a hit, though. Um, now, of course, there's a contest for Queen of Festival. Um, the winner of the contest receives a trip to Carnival in Quebec, a Ooh. mod decor photo. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Huh. Like a Like a portrait? I don't know. Or, like, just a mod photo. I don't know. Huh. A dress and a coat and a portable television. Nice. Um, portable television. It's very, I mean, this is really t- dating itself. Does it come to a on a cart like they would here. be let out in schools? <laughs> so it kicks off at an ice castle in Provence Park uh, with the crowning of Bridget Prince as queen um, and the arrival of various dignitaries, including the mayor, the lieutenant governor, and Ferret in horse drawn carriages. Very cute. Yeah, there's snow sculpture contests and snowshoe and snowmobile races. Does it look a lot like the festival we go to today? I think, like, in some ways. I mean, we've still got kind of the winter sports and the Mm. snow sculpture stuff. I think they have added a lot more of the musical stuff more recently and the food stuff as well. But, yeah, in some ways. When does the fort get built? I don't know. Because the fort's from around this time, too. I think you're right. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) Here, I'll quickly look it up. So I'm pretty sure they built the fort in the 60s or in the 70s. Uh, fort Gibraltar wasn't there for the first festival. Okay. I guess that makes sense if they had their um, this ice castle, right? It was built in the late 1970s for it. So there was no fort. Interesting. Yeah. Um, did you know, by the way, also that the... Okay, you know the Voyager song? Voyager va faire tes bagages. Do you know that one? No. Oh. <laughs> I went to a Mennonite town that didn't learn any French. That's right. I went to a school that did a full Voyager week. Is I mean, that the one that's like, set along, wee, wee, wee. Yes. Ah, yeah. That's the one. I, okay. That was only written in like the 70s. Oh, wow. I legitimately thought that was like an old Voyager song. <laughs> I thought so too. I thought yeah. I mean, they were like portaging their canoes. They right? Were... 
I feel like that's what our teachers told us. We're out to find Le Castor. Yeah, no, and then I found, like, I was looking through a book on festival history and found a, like, photo of the guy who wrote it and was like, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) It's just a current guy? (laughs) Um, Anyway, so it concludes with a huge costume ball, which sounds really fun. I think we should bring that back. Yeah. Um, so Would I've, it be like the like Halloween we go to where we like dress up in a costume, but they're mostly under coats? Well, but with Voyagers, that works because the costume <laughs> is a coat. <laughs> so I've seen very different numbers on this, but tens of thousands of people attended. I The lowest I saw was 50,000. That's still a That's lot. That's still a lot of people. Um, so yeah, first one goes off without a hitch. A year later, though, in January of 1971, when Ferré should probably be promoting the second year of festival in his official capacity, he's instead back to railing against Unicity. So the day after he gives a very public, somewhat controversial speech against Winnipeg's amalgamation, he turns in his resignation as official voyager. Oh, wow. So that's actually the end of his involvement in festival. Or so least... he just like helps set it up and then does one term. Yeah. And then I was like, I have to go fight the Winnipeg mayor again. Yeah. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. And there's some question as to whether he resigned or was like forced out. I think like the executive oh. kind of implied that they had forced him out and he was pretty annoyed about that. He was Interesting. like, no, I left voluntarily. Um, but I think what they were concerned about was that if he continued as the face of festival, that it would turn the festival into something that seemed like more of a protest instead of just a celebration of culture. Right. Which, which kind of makes sense. Um, what is interesting, though, is that Ferré continues to use the costume just in his, like, protests. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, despite having resigned, in February, he, like, makes a snowshoe trek down the Red River aiming to galvanize people against Unicity. (laughs) I think he brings his, like, oldest son with him, too. So. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just a snowshoe protest. And it's just him. Oh, yeah. I think there was some idea to go and kind of knock on people's doors as they went along. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So he spends the next few years continuing his activism. He actually even went on a hunger strike at one point. Against Unicity? Yes. This is a, this is a pretty intense guy in terms of, like, his principles and his beliefs. Yeah. Because, like, I can see being opposed to Unicity for a variety of reasons. That's a pretty intense reaction to what is essentially amalgamating municipal services. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the event at the heart of our story happens in 1976. So Faré's daughter, Nicole, um, she parks his car and she forgets to feed the meter. So We've all been there. We've all been there, but Faré comes back to find a parking ticket. Um, a parking ticket in English. In English only? In English only. Um, this is especially galling for Faré of all people, right? Because he <laughs> didn't want to be part of Winnipeg, where, right. they, where they give you English tickets, right? <laughs> um, and Wait, also, where does this happen? In St. Boniface. Okay. Yeah. I believe at his office. Okay. So he had a, yeah, um, an office on Marion, I think. So one of the conditions, though, of St. Boniface being amalgamated, because they made, you know, various agreements, was that all notices, bills, and statements issued in St. Boniface would be bilingual. Hmm. So Faré is like, hey, we agreed that these were supposed to be bilingual, and he hires Alain Hogue, who is a French Métis lawyer, who submits a complaint to the city. The city comes back and they say, oh, no, a ticket actually doesn't count as a notice. So, (laughs) Hmm. interesting. So, and he just like accepts that, right? Foray's like, sure. Yeah, and that's the end of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) No, he refuses to pay. 
Um, he and he says that basically people laughed at him when he started like kicking up a fuss about this. Um, they basically said like, well, you know, it's just Faré again, kind of doing his thing because. Like, at this point, he kind of has a reputation as someone who tends to kick up a fuss about things. Um, one editorial in La Liberté says, Come on, Georges, take off your snowshoes, come out of the forest, and pay your ticket. <laughs> <laughs> they make him really sound like some weird old crank that lives in the woods. Right? I know, and, like, most of the time he's just an insurance salesman, but... <laughs> then he picks a very public fight every now and again. Yeah. Take off your snowshoes is a pretty is a pretty good insult, I have to say. <laughs> Um, so he's eventually called to court for non-payment. That's what happens when you don't pay your tickets. Yeah. Um, and the judge, Judge Walker, he rules that parking tickets don't have to be bilingual because they are not a notice, he says. They're part of a court process. Um, so therefore, they fall under that 1890 Official Language Act, mm. which made Manitoba English only. So because this is like part of something that happens in the courts, courts are only in English, your ticket only has to be in English. Unless, I guess, you go back to the Manitoba Act. Yes, interesting. <laughs> so he, of course, appeals, um, and he actually files his appeal in French, which is already really interesting. That's even in itself an, an activist thing to do. This is the first time in Manitoba history that court documents had been filed in French. Really? Yeah, because the courts are in English only. Yeah, I guess would they not? They wouldn't be like specifically hiring bilingual people then to work at the courts. No, because if you were if you went to court, it would just be in English, mm -hmm. and that's the way it was. Um, and so this has suddenly moved from being like about a municipal issue of like what language are our tickets supposed to be in, and like the rights of people in this one municipality in Saint Boniface, um, to a question about like one of Manitoba's early foundational documents. And whether yeah. it's valid. <laughs> so, um, like I said, he appeals this. Armand Duro is the judge in this appeal, and he accepts the appeal. And, like, in French, he accepts it, which is interesting already. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's like, yes, I'll take your French documents. And he also says, you're right. The Official Language Act is unconstitutional. Hmm. So here's my layperson's understanding of his argument. The Manitoba Act, which did guarantee French rights, is an agreement between the province of Manitoba... And the federal government. And, like, more than that, it's part of the country's constitution. And, right. like, when you have an agreement, one half of the agreement can't just go back and change it by themselves. Both parties would have to come back and renegotiate. Both parties have to agree, which is not what happened with the Official Language Act. That was just Manitoba. So that means that the province didn't have any right to pass a law that changed that original Manitoba Act. Um, he also points out just in terms of like the intent that protecting language part rights was a big part of the negotiations for the Manitoba Act. Yeah, that was like a pretty key reason why Riel did a whole rebellion. rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was like the crux of the issue was language and religious rights. Yeah, so they signed something that they were like, this is really going to set it in stone. And Manitoba was kind of like, give it 20 years and we'll change it. Yeah, Manitoba was kind of like, nah, we're just going to pass something else. And they just they can't that's yeah yeah but then also like i don't know if you would just know this at the top of your head what was the state of like french language rights in other provinces like i know manitoba has a pretty big francophone population compared to like saskatchewan yeah, yeah. so there are this will come up a little bit later there are some similar challenges in other provinces quebec is also kind of having a parallel 
um, debate around its Anglophone population. Interesting. Yeah. So Quebec had had this whole kind of French rejuvenation um, during this period. And in response, I guess, Anglophones were worried about their rights. Yeah. And so, yeah, there really is almost at this exact same time a parallel debate happening in Quebec. Fascinating. Yeah. Though, so I talked to... Um, uh, Raymond Hébert, who's a historian, he uh, was a professor at the um, University of St. Boniface, and um, he was saying that, like, those parallels to some extent aren't totally fair because, like, Anglophones in Quebec have a little more, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, they have a little more privilege to begin with, I suppose, by dint of living in an overall English country. So it's not quite a, yeah. a perfect parallel, but certainly there are very similar kind of court cases happening. So around the same time, these like debates are cropping up everywhere. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. So there's an overall debate about languages in Canada, for sure. And do you know what the federal government's stances were on stuff like this? Um, so they actually give financial support to Faray in his... Really? They do. Yeah. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, yeah, they they were generally i think i mean they're kind of letting it play out yeah but they do i at guess least... it does appear as like a provincial issue at its yes, core right yeah. it's provincial law yeah so there's a whole bunch of appeals and motions and so on there's like four different levels of court in manitoba at this point which i don't want to make us go through all of them so ultimately the case lands at the supreme court of canada um with georges Ferret facing off against the attorney general of manitoba um, but before we get to that, I do want to pause and talk a little bit just about um, what everyone thought of this whole yeah. debacle. So for Francophones, basically since 1890, you had mentioned schools earlier. Mm -hmm. And since 1890, that had really been the thing on most Francophones' minds was keeping French schools. Um, and so there had been this kind of compromise in the late 1890s that allowed minority language education. So not just French, but whatever language was kind of required in a certain area. So there were like Mennonite schools where they were teaching speaking low German, speaking low German presumably. There were Ukrainian schools. Um, but in 1913, the Free Press runs a series of articles investigating the quality of bilingual schools. And... This kind of goes over like a, a number of months. A free press correspondent visits all these bilingual schools, looks at the work students are doing, like asks them questions, listens to them read. And they identify what they call a serious and urgent educational problem to solve. So they find, first of all, that um, students in these schools generally aren't learning English, which they're technically supposed to. It's supposed to be like an English and low German English and right. Ukrainian. Um, but more significantly, they find that there's basically no oversight of these schools. And so the quality of them is, like, varying dramatically. Um, and, like, their purpose, I don't think, was to take down bilingual schools, but that is what it ends up doing. Oh, God. I think they were trying to raise bigger questions about, like, hey, we should have oversight of schools. And, Be like school boards. <laughs> and, like, what about, like, the availability of schools is a big thing they're talking about. Right, yeah. Or, like, should attendance be mandatory? Are we actually enforcing that? But what actually happens is that the Minister of Education abolishes bilingual education. Right. Yeah. So, because that's not an overreaction. Well, this is happening around the same time, too, that, like, a couple years after this, the government's going to ban foreign language publications during the war, right? That's true. Yeah. So it's coming out around a time where they're sort of banning other languages. Yeah. For what they're calling, like, security concerns in the case of the foreign language stuff. 
in the publications. Yeah, so I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but I wonder if there is some sort of, um, I don't know, patriotism powered assimilation that's trying to happen here. It seems to be around the right time for that. Yeah, yeah. So that's what happens. Um, now, that's not to say that French language education doesn't continue, because it does, but ma- mainly kind of under the radar. Yeah, I've heard stories from people that went to French schools where, yeah. like, they would have, like, a chalkboard that had French on it, and they would, like, cover it up with English writing when someone came by to check it out. Yeah, so it was a lot of, like, stuff like that, or just, like, administrators kind of turning a blind eye, being like, we're just gonna not talk about the French elephant in the room, right? Um, which is an elephant, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was gonna ask. <laughs> um, so in the 50s and 60s, there's a lot of a- activism around that. Um, and in 1970, they had finally gotten French instruction legally restored to some extent. Oh my god, it takes so long. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of Francophones are kind of like, listen, we just got this really big win, and we don't want to get it rolled back. So it's time to just, like, shut up for a little bit. Or at least, like, just, like, I don't know, kind of try to coast for a bit. Interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah, I feel like it also makes sense to follow up that big win by maybe pushing for a little more. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are different different tacks that you could yeah. take on that, right? Because in some cases you might say, like, well, we don't want to, like, really upset people by trying to push for too much at once. We want to sort of ask for this, and then people will be like, well, that seems to be working okay. What if we push for a little more? That's not the kind of person that Faré is, though. Oh, no. <laughs> and Faré is saying, why does French only get to exist in, like, our homes and our churches and our schools? Why can't we be publicly French? Which is, you know, yeah. a pretty legitimate argument to me. So, um, Hébert um, told me about some of the opposition. You know, uh, I, I should mention, and this is... Um... Not everyone was convinced that we should go to court at all. And uh, he, uh, he got some federal funds to allow him to, to go to court, like at, at the various levels, provincial court, and then the Court of Queen's Bench, then the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, and he started a campaign for uh, funding by the French community, and the French community was very reluctant to... to to get on board. And I, I should say I was one of those that was reluctant and my leadership of the SFM at the time was reluctant. And the reason is simple, supposing he'd lost, mm-hmm. you know? Because right, I guess the Supreme a, Court is a, kind a, of the end of the road, yeah, right? It's... End of the road, so that would be it. And uh, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, by the way, and there's a whole other convoluted uh, constitutional story there, they lost. So there's already precedence for losing, then, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and so actually, I'm not sure if those cases came before or afterwards, but in either case, it's certainly a risk that if they take this through, they could lose. And then... That's, I guess, the end of it, right? That's that's the end. There isn't another level above the Supreme Court if you lose there. Um, and a final factor is also that, like, Ferre is someone who rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, he sounds intense. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the right way to put it. So, so this is what Raymond told me about Faré. Yeah. Did you did you ever meet did you ever meet him or? Oh yeah, I knew him very well. Oh yeah, really? Okay. Can you can you well. tell me a little yeah. bit about uh, you know how he was as a person? Well, I think uh, I, the word mer- uh, mercurial comes comes to mind. <laughs> very passionate, very uh, and very um, 
the word, the French word is irréfléchi often. He would spout off the mouth and, and just say crazy things, you know. I mean, uh, I can't give you examples, but uh, it, it was, I found it hard to have a conversation with him because he, he was so uh, passionate and so convinced that he was right that, mm. you know, it, it became tedious. It wasn't a rational conversation. It was... You know. Okay, but then he did also, at a different point, tell me this. It certainly all started with him. Uh, he is certainly uh, an admirable figure uh, for having uh, been uh, uh, tenacious. Tenacity, I would say, was, mm -hmm. was his greatest quality. So there's, you know, some good and some bad there, right? Or some good and some, like, maybe difficult. I mean, I think it takes a special kind of person to push a parking ticket all the way up to the supreme court well this is the thing right is this there's he's like this tenacity is kind of a, a gift when it comes to this kind of activism but it does make someone i could see it being annoying in like everyday stuff yeah and i think too like it's it sounds to me like if you were just talking to him about other things he was a totally normal nice fun guy it was just when he when, got passionate things. when he got passionate he could he could maybe be a little bit more intense um, and I, I will say, too, that another person who I spoke to, I asked if Faré, the, the word I used was difficult. I asked if he was difficult. And he told me that he thought that that was too strong a word. Okay. He said that he was very, he was a good guy. He was just very focused and very determined. Tenacity. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. This is what everyone says, right? Um, so the Société Franco-Manitobaine, um, which is the main organization kind of representing Franco-Manitobans during this period, they had been kind of lukewarm towards Faré, um, sort of like nominally supporting him, but also pretty skeptical. Um, and La Liberté, which is our like main Franco-Manitoban publication, had been covering Faré's quest. But by 1977, they had seemingly become pretty annoyed with his constant demands that attention be paid to the case. Okay. So I've got an interesting piece here. It's, it's a little bit long, but I find it really interesting. Okay. I'll just read some bits of it. So... Mr. Ferret and certain people in his group seem to think that what they call the Ferret affair should have pri priority over everything else, that every week we should bring it back, dissect all its elements, and shout on high that a new messiah has arrived to us. Mr. Ferret is adopting the attitude of the patriarch, the chosen one, of the savior of the race, to whom all matters relating to Francophonia in Manitoba, its future and its survival have been conferred. No one, as far as we know, asked Mr. Ferret to put himself in the situation that he is in now. The real problem of Francophonia in Manitoba is not that of the law of 1870 nor the law of 1890. The survival of Francophones resides in the desire, the will of each person to maintain the culture of their father, to persevere in French. And this, we say again, starts at home, in the foyer, and should follow at school, at a French school. It is for this reason that for a long time we have been fighting for French schools. We do not believe that Mr. Ferret has a lesson to teach us. The attitude he is taking up of making remonstrances against those who do not automatically join up with his causes and campaigns is pretentious, arrogant, and hubristic. Oh, wow. So this is from people who kind of support his cause. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't sound like. No, I mean, this is, I guess, maybe maybe that's wrong to say, actually. You know, they are supportive of francophones which mm -hmm. Faré also is they're on kind of the same side but they're saying we don't think the issue is the laws and we don't think we should go to court and it's annoying that this one guy is trying to push us this way yeah and i could see 
from Foray's perspective then, like, being... Because he's talking about, like, we should be French in every aspect of our lives, right? So, like, I would be annoyed if I kept being like, it should be in the legal system, too. And then people kept going, no. Yeah, they're kind of coming back with the same old... Like, I could see it being, like, a tired old argument to him, right? That, like, look, we've got the schools. Can we do something else now? Um... And uh, Faré's supporters also would say that La Liberté was basically like the mouthpiece of, a, of the SFM. So like because the SFM, the Société Franco-Manitobaine, because they weren't supporting him, that was why La Liberté wasn't. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know enough about the history of the publication to say one way or the other on that. Um, Faré also knew that people felt this way about him. He doesn't seem to have been particularly no. troubled by it. <laughs> no, you wouldn't have, like, you wouldn't let that get to you. No. <laughs> There's an interview where he's asked if he's a radical, and he says, yes. <laughs> uh, he says, that's because I don't compromise when it comes to my principles. I can make compromises when it comes to timelines or methods. But on the fact that Manitoba is a bilingual province, as established by Louis Riel in 1870, there is no possible compromise. Okay. Yeah. Seems like a clear answer. Yep. Um, of course, also, that is, you know, the sort of infighting, but there are also Anglophones who oppose Foray. Yeah, well, thinking about Riel, too, in this context, this is well before we start talking about Riel as, like, a hero. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, the way that, you know, our parents' generation learned about Riel was very different than the way that we did. Yeah, no, I mean, until, like, what, 30 years ago, he, people were taught he was a terrorist, essentially, right? So I could see Foray's claim not holding as much water then. Yeah, um, and there are, like, I, I want to start out, because we'll talk about some more pretty, uh, questionable isn't even strong enough a word, some pretty ridiculous opposition, honestly. Okay. But I want to start out with what I think was some maybe semi-reasonable concerns. Okay. So a lot of people are concerned with the expense of translating everything, and of hiring bilingual clerks, and so on. I don't know, that's fair, we, we fight about the things that we spend money on. As a province, as a city, all the time. <laughs> what? People fighting about taxpayers? Right. Spending? <laughs> hmm. They're also concerned that there will be fewer opportunities for unilingual Anglophones. I don't know. Fair enough. I mean, you know, it's not it's not impossible to learn a language, but it takes time. It's yeah. hard. Um, it takes money also. Yeah. I mean, less so now, because I guess we have, you know, free online tools and yeah. stuff. But yeah, back in the day, you'd probably have to take some kind of training. Um. And there are some also who argue that because Manitoba is multicultural, that it's unfair to give, quote, special rights to Francophones. Um, now, of course, that doesn't take into account this 1870 document. Like the legal precedent. The legal, it. yeah. The kind of legal foundation there. Um, and so I had mentioned the federal government funding. So they announced on March 10th, 1978 that they're going to give financial assistance to Ferré. And this is a, just a demonstration of how some of the opposition gets pretty ugly and really steps outside the bounds of those kind of, you know, conversations mm-hmm. that people can have, right? So, um, actually, maybe we can read this together. Do you want to be Georges or do you want to be the caller? I'll be the caller. Okay. Bonsoir. Good evening. Never mind that goddamn French. Speak English. Okay, what can I do for you? I hope you have enough insurance on your property at 160 Marion because it's going to go up like the Immaculate Conception Church one of these days. Come on now, you can't be serious. Is this a threat? It isn't a threat, it's a fact. It won't be tonight, but within the next month, you can be sure. So, it's not great. Did the St. Bonavist Cathedral just burn down then? Because that's what they're referencing. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're referencing. Um, what year was it? It wasn't. It wasn't like right then, but it was not that Wouldn't it past long. like fifteen like, years. Yeah, I think I want to say the sixties. Yeah. I'd have to double check that. But um, 
So it's yeah. a crazy call to make. It's a crazy call to make. Super threatening. You can't say that to someone. He also gets a number of other just like threatening calls that night. Ones with less specific threats, but well, still. there was one you sent me where someone gets. Was this the one you sent me where someone yells at him? He goes, "Okay," and then just moves on. Yeah. This. Is, well, that's what it's. I mean, it, it's not funny because they're threatening to burn his business down. But yeah, what made me laugh was that he tells him, "Never mind that goddamn French," and he says, "Okay, what can I do for you?" <laughs> Which is a very measured, right very it. measured response, which makes me think that he was probably used to pretty this. used to stuff like this. Um, yeah, so he gets a number of other calls. It's probably not a very fun time. Um, and we will talk more about some of the more violent opposition because it actually it gets worse, not better. Really? Yeah. So in December, December of 1979, Faré is finally before the Supreme Court. And he is arguing, right, that the official language act of 1890 is invalid. Mm hmm. And the court agrees. They agree with that uh, lower court. Um, they say that Manitoba didn't have the jurisdiction to override the Manitoba Act. So this is a huge win, obviously. Yeah. Um, Francophone support for Ferre is certainly a lot higher after his success. <laughs> They're like, oh, we like you better now that you actually won. You actually did it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know. <laughs> we were worried. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the SFM, even they throw a soiree for him. Oh. Yeah. They thank him for being the vehicle of redressing an unjust and racist law. Um, and I should mention the one group that he always had the support of was his family. He's a real oh. family guy. I think he had five kids. Um, his wife, Anita, talks about how she was, like, a little confused by his campaign at first, <laughs> but eventually the whole family became a team. Um, their oldest son even made, like, a t-shirt supporting his dad that he would wear oh. to school, which, like, in high school, that's pretty brave to wear, like, a... <laughs> yeah, I... if for a teenage boy to be like, I'm gonna wear a shirt about how much I like and support my dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, politics aside, yeah. brave choice. Um, the younger ones didn't totally understand, but they were, like, proud of their dad for fighting the good fight. And I just, his wife Anita seems very chill overall, yeah. I have to say. Like, in the interview I watched, they asked her about, like, the threats the family had received. And she was kind of like, oh, yeah, well, we've gotten used to it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she also said that for her part, she was able to kind of, like, get along and be good neighbors with the people who didn't agree with them still. Which I, I feel like is a really good skill to have. Right, yeah. I have a, hard, I have a really hard time with that. I admire people who can do that. Um, so yeah, it's a big win, but not a lot changes actually in the short term. Um, the decision answered a pretty narrow question, um, right. about the validity of that law, but it didn't really answer all the questions that come with that. So would they have to go back and translate every single law? Um, what would happen if they didn't? Um, and there's like a lot of debate now that the 1870 Manitoba Act, now that that section of it is fully back in effect of like, what does that language in it actually mean right. if we have to actually follow it? So there's a pretty wide spectrum of what people think it means. The SFM is like, oh, this means that all Francophones should be entitled to French language services now. Mm hmm. And the government is kind of taking the line of like, well, maybe all we have to do is kind of start translating stuff from now on. Okay. Yeah. So these are the two kind of polar opposite right. ends, right? Of like, well, this means that like there's full equality and like, no, it just means we have to translate some stuff going <laughs> forward. Um, so shortly after Faré wins his case, though, something else happens, which will help to clarify some of those questions. And I'll let uh, Roger Bilodeau tell this story. I was, in fact, I was in law school um, and I was back home for the summer 
uh, working in Winnipeg and I had got, uh, I was driving, I was driving back home to Senegal from Winnipeg. And uh, on that particular day, I think it was in May or June of 1980, um, as I say, driving down Lindale Drive, not paying enough attention and not recalling that the speed limit was lower on Lind Lindale Drive than other streets. And lo and behold, I got a ticket. So we've got a second ticket. Uh-oh. <laughs> is this one in both languages? It is not. <laughs> By the way, I should say one thing that's kind of ironic about this whole thing, even from the very beginning, is they had, they had made French parking tickets. They had them. They existed. They existed. And they just kept giving them to the wrong people. <laughs> I can only imagine there was some very confused person in, like, Elmwood with a French parking ticket. But then also, like, imagine the management of these people being like, are we in trouble again because you gave out the wrong ticket? Right. <laughs> so I did ask Roger if he got the ticket intentionally, just because I was curious. I was like, were you just, like, driving really fast trying to get a ticket so you could do another court case? And he, he said people have asked him this before, but no. He just, <laughs> he just genuinely was not paying enough attention. So, I love that other people have asked. Too. I know. <laughs> I, I like asked him that. I was like, you might not want to answer this, but I do have to ask. <laughs> so at this time, he had just finished his first year of law school. He also had a good friend who was a lawyer um, who kind of encouraged him to take it further. Um, and here's what he told me about his motivations. And uh, in 19, December of 1979, the Supreme Court ruled in the Ferrer case that the 1890 law of Manitoba was unconstitutional. And as you know, that law declared English the official language and that provincial law was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But it did not say anything about the consequences or the impact of that ruling. It simply answered the question, is that law constitutional or not? Because that's the question which was put to the court in that particular case. But on, this, but on the same day, December 13, 1979, the court also ruled in the Lakey decision from Quebec that Quebec had an obligation to publish its laws, provincial laws, in both English and French, as per the Constitution, Section 133 of the Canadian Constitution. Well, it so happens that we have the same requirement in Manitoba as a result of Section 23 of the Manitoba Act, 1870. Identical obligation as applies to Quebec and to the federal government, but a different constitutional instrument. So looking at the Blakey decision, it struck me that the result could be similar for Manitoba, for Manitoba, uh, and that if it was not, then we were we were in, 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 in we were having a paper tiger uh, because we have a constitution which provides for a requirement, but it's not being followed. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting that it's happening, like a parallel argument in Quebec that I guess could you could use here to bolster your case, right? Yeah, and the interesting thing that really helps to bolster it is that it's based on almost identical language. Really? Yeah. So the Manitoba Act and the British North America Act have almost identical language about language rights. Okay. And so the fact that they've already decided in this Blakey case in Quebec in favor of a certain amount of Anglophone rights lends credence to the possibility that they might do the same mm -hmm. uh, for Manitoban language rights. 
Um, yeah, and I mean, there's a much more complicated history of what's going on in Quebec. We just like don't have the time. That's outside of the scope of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's an argument to be made here that Manitoba owns owes the same rights to francophones as Quebec owes to anglophones. Um, and so he says, first of all, he goes to court and he says, this document needs to be bilingual. But also, I believe that the I shouldn't have gotten a ticket at all because the Highway Traffic Act is invalid. Uh, oh, because it's only in English. Because it's only in English. <laughs> yes. If you remember, the Manitoba Act says that the acts of the legislature shall be printed and published in both French and English. <laughs> so it's a clever argument. Yes. This is a, And this is a question that hadn't been asked or answered during Fauté's case, which was like, okay, does the Manitoba Act mean that all of these things have to be printed <laughs> in French and English or just that they like should be the the phrasing in it, in it is shall so oh. there's a lot of debate at various levels of court over like what does shall no. mean does shall does shall just mean like we could if we feel like it if we have the time and we're in the mood we yeah. can maybe like translate a few laws for fun yeah and so if it does mean that they have to be, that's a pretty big problem. Because then all of our laws are essentially invalid. <laughs> uh-huh. We haven't been doing that for 80 years, and there's Think about... Of how many laws we've introduced to, like, for new technologies. There are over 10,000 pages of laws. Oh! And that does not take into account things like regulations. Like, oh, wow. other, yeah. Other kind of smaller <laughs> things like that. So, um, yeah, Billado also lands at the Supreme Court, and there's a possibility here that all of Manitoba's laws could be declared void. <laughs> I'm just imagining an, a reality in which this is the case and the, like, aftermath that would occur. Yeah, we just have... <laughs> Man- Manitoba we is basically an anarchist. The, purg, yeah. the purge, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> there are no more laws here. You go at whatever speed you yes. feel like. You can so, take whatever you want from anyone you want. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, that's not what... I don't think that what's... That's what Roger Bilodeau thought was going to happen. No. I think, you know, he figured that probably it would come down somewhere a little more reasonable. But it was it was actually a thing that could happen. And that even that slim possibility throws Manitoba into crisis. Yeah, I could see that being like wildly chaotic. Even if there's a 1% chance that that might happen, you want to do what you can to prevent it, right? <laughs> Um, and so, like, seeing possible disaster on the horizon, the provincial government under the NDP, they begin negotiating with the SFM. Um, and what they're hoping to do is come to some kind of agreement, possibly even a constitutional amendment, which would be an agreement between the SFM, representing Franco-Manitobans, the Manitoba government, and the federal government. Okay. So... The Supreme Court basically gives them the leeway to do this. They say, okay, we'll give you a certain amount of time. You go back. You try to make some kind of we agreement. We also don't want Manitoba to become an anarchist state. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and leading these negotiations is actually Roland Penner. Oh. Son of uh, our good old friend Jacob Penner. That's fun. Yeah. Um, and there's something to be gained here on both sides, right? So for the government, they're hoping to come to some kind of agreement with the SFM to reduce the number of laws. That they need to translate yeah. to say like, okay, we don't actually need to translate every single law we've ever passed. Some of those we're not even really using anymore, right? Yeah, I imagine some of them are very well redundant. Yeah, so like maybe we can come to some kind of agreement where like these are really the important ones. And also they're hoping to get some kind of length of time to actually do that in. You can't do that overnight, right? right That's yeah. a lot of work to do. Um, and for the SFM, they're considering the fact that the Manitoba Act doesn't actually in its language like guarantee French services. 
they feel mm. that that's kind of a logical extension of what it says, but it's not really in there, right? right? It just says that you can speak French in the legislature and the courts. But yeah, then also, I suppose, thinking about, like, the services offered to you as a Winnipegger in mm. 1870. Well, that's true. They probably weren't thinking about that, right? They weren't like, what if I go into a department store? Yeah, so, like, What if I have to get my car fixed? They're thinking more about the intent of it, right? Yeah. Which was clearly that there's, like, some kind of equality of languages. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. And yeah, they wouldn't have been... Th- and also, you know, if you're living in Manitoba in 1870, you maybe didn't even think that you had to entrench that because there were just... There were French and English people around. Right, yeah. Throughout the... This was a pretty diverse place. Um... And so, yeah, so they're they're doing these negotiations, um, but opposition during this period, I guess people know that these negotiations are kind of going on, and it reaches a pretty violent peak. So this is what uh, Raymond Hébert told me about that. There were demonstrations uh, around the province uh, in rural areas as well as in Winnipeg. Uh, some fringe elements did get involved. The Ku Klux Klan was involved, and I document that fairly thoroughly. In the uh, because the Ku Klux Klan has been active in West, Western Canada since the early 1920s, and when the old Saint Boniface College burnt down in 1922, that fire was never resolved. By the way, it was about 15 deaths or something. It was quite a you know it was a tragedy, and one of the theories was that the Ku Klux Klan had set fire to it. Because uh, at the same time, during that period of time, 1920 to 1930, there's about 40 churches in Quebec that burned down during that period. And and uh, all of them unsolved. So, you know, something something was afoot uh, during, during those years. Although there was never any, uh, nobody was ever found guilty of, of anything in the case of St. Boniface College. Now, one thing that did happen is that they burned down the, not necessarily the Ku Klux Klan, but certain extremist violent elements, burnt down the headquarters of La Societe Franco-Manitoban in, uh, I believe it was early 1983. I don't know why. I didn't expect the KKK to turn up at any point in this episode. No, and the face that you made <laughs> is the same face I made when he told me that. <laughs> Um, so in 1984, this journalist, David Roberts, he reports that members of the KKK had joined Manitoba Grassroots, which was this anti-bilingualism organization that had been formed. And his source for this, he has this confirmed from the organization. From oh, the KKK. really? Yeah. He asks them and they're like, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and so he, um, they asked the leader of Manitoba Grassroots if this bothered him. And he says, sure, but what can you do? Get the KKK out. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a longer answer, but I'm like, no, but you can do things. <laughs> I feel like um, if your group is attracting the KKK, maybe your group shouldn't exist. Maybe you've taken a wrong path somewhere. <laughs> Reevaluate a lot Re-evaluate, of stuff. You know what? Yeah, a lot of stuff, actually. <laughs> um, and the other thing you mentioned towards the end of there is another pretty wild thing, which is that the headquarters of the SFM were burned down. Yeah, that's crazy. Where were they? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, they were, I mean, in St. Boniface, I assume. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it had its windows smashed twice. Um, it was vandalized, like, you know, graffitied. And yeah, at the end of January 1983 was actually burned down. And so wow. had to like relocate. I think they were maybe within the college for a bit. But yeah, and Raymond also mentions there that there's this like earlier history of like fires 
mm-hmm. which were possibly done by the KKK, but we don't know. But obviously, it, like, the point here is just that that's all really scary. Yeah, and, like, I don't know, just coming at it from, like, a 2023 perspective, it's weird to think about this level of violence directed against just, like, Franco-Manitobans. It really is. And this is the thing that I, like, struggled to wrap my mind around this whole episode, is I'm like, do you care that much? Right? Like, settle down, please. It seems, yeah, like such kind of like a natural state of being. Like, yeah, of course. French services exist. French services exist, and that's fine. Yeah, so Leo Robert, who uh, was president of the SFM, he also had a bullet with his photo tied to it delivered to his house. Oh my god. He was advised by the police to move out of his home, actually. I think he refused, but... Um, Jeez. Yeah. It was a, yeah, a scary time for, for some people, for sure. Um... Despite all this, they do actually manage to draft a constitutional amendment. So um, what this said was that English and French were to be the official languages of Manitoba. Any law enacted after 1985 would be invalid if it was not bilingual. Previous laws were still valid, but were to be translated, and it gave a deadline of 1993 to translate them. And it gave the right to receive services in French and English. So um, Big changes. Yeah, and... uh, Bilodeau told me that he was in favor of this agreement. Like, he was happy to let that be the thing and drop his case and that'd be all good. To him, it looked like a win-win. So everything is seeming like it might reach kind of a friendly conclusion. Until. Mm -mm. (laughs) This is a a bit of a twist here. I don't know if you'll expect who drops the ball on this. Do you want to (laughs) guess? Is it someone we've mentioned already or do I have to just kind of Only, Only briefly. Should I just tell you? Is it Trudeau? It is. Really? Yes. Because he accidentally announces the deal early. (gasps) No. Yeah. He's giving a speech to kind of like a private liberal club and he mentions offhand, oh, soon Manitoba is going to be a bilingual province. This leaks out of that meeting, first into the Francophone presses, then into the Anglophone presses, just as this like rumor of this thing that Trudeau said. And they're like, what? (laughs) So Premier Polly is forced to confirm that like, oh, yes. We'd come to this, we've come to this agreement. And basically everyone freaks out. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, so, and I think, like, the big thing here was just the lack of transparency, I suppose. Like, there there was knowledge that negotiations were going on, but I don't think people knew that they were, like, done. Done. Exactly. I think people expected that maybe they'd have more of a chance to go to the legislature and yell at them. Yes, exactly. That's what that's what people want a lot of the time, right? Beef so, sessions. Yeah, we need beef sessions. So Roland Patner tries to calm things down. Um, he gives this like 90 minute speech reminding everyone that if the Billado case goes forward, there's a chance every Manitoba law can be invalidated. <laughs> um, and also explaining that like these are the negotiations we've been doing. This is like the tit for tat, you know? Yeah. Um, but Sterling Lyon, who's the head of the conservative opposition on this point, begins demanding hearings on the issue. Oh, fun. That won't take any time at all. He does get them. These are apparently, I, I actually, I didn't have a chance to look into these, but uh, Roger Bellado is telling me that he thinks these might be the longest public hearings in Manitoba history. <laughs> I could believe it. Yeah. So these go on for a really long time. A lot of rural municipalities are extremely opposed to this. The rural municipality of Shellmouth adopts a resolution that government affairs, quote, should be conducted in Canadian only. What? Okay. (laughs) But like, what does that mean then? Oh, that's loaded. Yeah. There's a bunch of other rural municipalities that adopt like similar, though, like less silly resolutions. (laughs) That one's a bit of an outlier. (laughs) 
Um, the Reeve of Grahamdale, Clarence Keesman, said he had no sympathy, no time, and no money for minority groups. Well, okay, hold on. I have a question. Yeah. Then. How much do you think this is not just anti-French, but anti-Métis? That's interesting. I think it might be also anti-Catholic. Oh. Potentially. But yeah. I think, like, you know, and I talked to, like, both Raymond and Roger about how much of this was bigotry. And I think Raymond thinks it was, a lot of it was bigotry. And Roger thinks less. I'll, I'll play you a clip about okay. that in a bit. Um, but, yeah, he says he has no sympathy, no time, and no money for minority groups. And no other minority groups were pressing for rights except for, quote, the Indians, and who are they learning it from? So you might be on to something. I think there. I might be. You might. You might. I have, might have like really dialed into that right there. Uh-huh. Um, Penner is like heckled at information sessions in various towns. Um, in Thompson. Charlie's father's son. Yeah, this is this is from uh, Raymond's book. Uh, in Thompson, uh, he says Penner's remarks were interrupted frequently by hecklers shouting, "Go back to Russia." How much is this going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? And how many will lose their jobs? So, I feel like three of the four there are kind of like, okay. And then one of them is crazy. One of them's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to say which one. No, I'm just kidding. It's the go back to Russia. Don't say that to people. No, it's the, it's the how much money will this cost. That's the outlandish <laughs> one. So... Yeah, one opponent said, I've watched this country become slowly Canadian. The French are separate. They don't want to become Canadian. You'll have to speak French to get a job. A person who can't speak French is a second-rate person in this country. Now, part of this also is that there's also things about Quebec separatism going on at this point, right? Which color people's opinions mm -hmm. about this. Um, now, I don't want this episode to become like an anti-rural Manitoba <laughs> episode, which is what I started getting really worried about at this part of the script. Yeah. <laughs> um. There's that, French municipalities. This is yes. This is what I was gonna say. Is that obviously there are French municipalities that and like that just happens to be how this went down. Um, and like I do think there are some kernels of genuine struggle there. I think a lot of the time when we hear bigotry, some of it comes from genuine desires for you know stability. Right? Mm -hmm. People are like whatever. People are worried about losing their jobs. Fine, you know. But maybe there's a way that we can address that that isn't crazy. <laughs> Um, and those, I think those genuine concerns get kind of subsumed by those louder voices. Which is, I mean, also often how things go. Yes, totally. That's always what happens, right? So this is what Roger told me when I asked him if he thought most of the opposition was just bigotry. As is often the case, even today, is unfortunately ignorance and not understanding what the issue is really about and what the, what the question is, what the problem is, and what the solution can be. And even then, in those days, I think people uh, were struck by the headlines in the papers. And of course, you had the any any time you're trying to, I think, bring bring about fundamental or major change in society or in government is bound to attract a lot of attention and a lot of concern. But I personally think a lot of it was based on people not just not fully understanding how how this came about and not fully understanding what was trying what we were trying to do to try and resolve this picture. Yeah, so I think he has a more kind of measured understanding of it which is that it was maybe not so much bigotry as it was just people 
not understanding what... Like a lack of political literacy, essentially, right? Yeah, and also that, I mean, to be fair, like, this, because it came out so quickly, people maybe didn't have a chance to really learn about what was going on. All of a sudden, they're just like, Manitoba's bilingual, and they're like, what do you mean? (laughs) Since when? (laughs) Yeah, I guess also it depends on, like, who you're hearing this from, like... I'm sure a lot of people were getting it, like, secondhand from oh, a neighbor yeah. who heard it somewhere, and the neighbor had some, like, maybe worse opinions. Yeah, and the neighbor was like, I heard that we're all gonna have to speak French. The Russians French. are coming in and making us speak French. <laughs> right. So, um, and I think, like, yeah, a lot of the opposition, I think, had less to do with the actual content than with this kind of storm that's whipped up and with the way it comes out. hmm Because, um, for one thing, I should say that, like, the way it was envisioned was that municipalities could basically opt in to French language services. So in most cases, it wouldn't have affected these communities at all. They would they would have simply said, oh, we don't have a large French language community. We'll just opt out. Yeah. Um, but that just gets totally lost in this reaction. Um, by the way, the poly government, I will like they bungled this pretty badly. Oh, no. This was like this was the second bungled announcement of this amendment. They had previously prematurely announced that they had come to an agreement. And then the SFM was like, we're not actually done yet. We still have concerns. And they were like, just kidding. Oh God. So, Oh man, you can't do that twice. No, (laughs) Once is bad. Twice is like, Oh no. It's pretty bad. So yeah. I mean, they were trying to do something that I think made sense, right? They're trying to do this agreement. It was really just the messaging, the communication that Mm -hmm. was all wrong here. Um, now I should say there, there is actually a good deal of support, um, from other immigrant groups and minority communities. So, um, Portuguese, Irish, Dutch, French, Chinese, indigenous and Métis associations, um, Indian, Vietnamese and Jewish community groups all send letters, um, supporting this constitutional amendment because, um, you know, I think they probably see this as sort of a, a rising tide lift all, lifts all boats, right? Right, yeah. I mean, if we're building an infrastructure where we have multilingual or bilingual at this point services. What's to stop us from then adding more languages to that down the Absolutely, road? right. Um, so Sterling Lyon, though, is kind of continuing on this like parade of opposition and the conservatives firmly place themselves in opposition to the constitutional amendment. Um but one of the most vocal voices against the agreement actually comes from within the NDP. Really? Yeah. So Russell Dern, the NDP MLA for Elmwood, breaks rank over this issue. Really? Yeah. He had previously been in cabinet. Like, this was a guy who, you know, he'd been in the party for a long time. And he tries to bring it up kind of in cabinet. He fails to get any traction. So he goes public with his concerns. Okay. So we know what they are. Oh, Yeah. This guy, well, he also, so this is his, I had sent you some clips from this because I picked up uh, Russell Dern's book. Right. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, no, I remember this book. So I thought it was going to be like a history. Yeah. And it was not. It was an account of this man's personal feelings about this thing. I mean, it it is a history, but uh, a primary source, maybe, let's (laughs) say. So um, what he does is he sends out a bunch of like mail-in surveys. Um, And here's what it says. The people of Manitoba are discussing the agreement between the federal and provincial governments and the Franco-Manitoban society to extend French language services and proceed to make Manitoba unofficially bilingual province. What do you think? The question is complex. Some people argue that Canada is a bilingual nation and therefore French Canadians have special rights and privileges. 
While other citizens contend that French language services would be costly at this time, should be limited in a province with a large ethnic population, and that the ability to speak French could become a condition of employment. And then it asked people to uh, mark whether they supported, opposed, or were undecided. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think of that phrasing? I think what right, what caught my eye right or my ear right away was the demand special services right at the start, uh-huh. as opposed to like if we look at the Constitution. Like the if we look at the Manitoba Act, it's essentially a right that they're guaranteed. Yes. So it's not a special. No, it's a treatment. It's just it's the same rights as English speakers. Yeah, have. exactly. So it's not like an exemption that just assumes that. I mean, in a lot of ways, Anglophone was the default, but like he mentions too that there's other ethnic groups. So like. Yeah. So certainly he's he's portraying this as if he's sort of coming into it just with like these are the facts. But it reminds me, Kate, not as bad as this, but it reminds me a little bit of who is that MP? Was it Lawrence Tate? Who sent oh. out that that thing a bit, um, like a few years ago? That was like, do you support this bill? Yes, I support it. No, terrorists are people too. Right. Yes. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. Now, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's not as bad as that, but certainly the no, way but the language is there to trick people into answering one way or another, or or at least to like to sway them a little yeah. for sure, right? So Premier Polly is basically like, could you cut that out? Actually, <laughs> this looks bad. Yeah. Um, he does not cut it out. Okay. So instead, he goes on a local talk radio show, um, and he takes calls, and you'll never guess who calls in. Is it our old friend Foray? It's our old friend Georges Foray. So I've got a dramatic reading here. Right. Um, Nick, can you play one of the parts here? Do you, you guys, I'll let you guys choose who wants to be Foray and who wants to be Russell. Um, for full disclosure, I've edited this down pretty significantly, just so it's not a million hours long. Um, but if you do want to read the whole thing, it's in Russell Dern's book, which is at the library. Nick, do you have strong opinions? No, I'll be whoever. Um, I'll be uh, George Foray then. Okay, perfect. Oh, here I'll be I'll be Peter Warren. <laughs> okay. So I'm Dern. Yeah. Action line. Good morning. I would like to speak to your guest this morning, Russell Dern. Good morning. Russell, this is George Foray here. I remember you, Russell, and I'm calling to tell you that a little part of what you're promoting has validity, but that which is a which is good is completely submerged by your radicalism. I don't think I was radical on this issue. You're radical to the point of being a frontline bigot and bigotry breeds in ignorance. You do not appear to know the history of Canada nor that of Manitoba. I taught history. <laughs> Listen, I hope that someday you will stop using that red herring of saying that Ukrainian or the Germans are more numerous and therefore should have their language rights. That has to be taken into consideration. It's not being taken into consideration as Manitoba being a bilingual province. You're damn right it has to be taken into consideration. You're only saying it for political gain. It's a red herring. You're doing what I would like to call the dog in the manger syndrome. What's that? (laughs) The dog in the manger syndrome is that we don't need another language and the French will not have it. George... Let's get down to brass tacks here. You want to talk about translating statutes. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. You want to talk about the French language in the courts. I'm not disagreeing with you on that. You say that the legislature should have bilingualism. I'm not disagreeing with that. Why the hell do we need it on boards, commissions, agencies, and crown corporations? The Supreme Court has imposed it on Quebec. Imposed it on Quebec. Well, have they imposed it on Manitoba? It would come. Oh, it would come. If the legislation doesn't go through, the Supreme Court is going to come into that shortly. George, I know you. I know you're bad at me. 
<laughs> I tell you, I'm not mad at you, but that doesn't matter. That's beside the point. Do you think it is necessary or desirable to have our boards, commissions, agencies, crown corporations, 250 of them with people sitting around waiting for the day when you or somebody comes in to talk French too? No, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. All right, then explain it. Let's get to the point. You tell me. The person, be it the man or at the minimum over the next generation, the receptionist in all of these 250 boards should be at least bilingual, and I would say preferably trilingual or quadrilingual. We're talking about communications here. Why should we have 250 bilingual receptionists? Because this is a bilingual province. Would you entrench it in the Constitution? I don't think you have to entrench a service. Well, fine. All right, then. Maybe we don't disagree if it's simply... That's what I wanted to say to you, Russell, is that on certain things I agree with you. I think that the constitutional change should be done with everyone participating. But look, George, the point is this. If you're saying that it makes sense for boards, commissions, agencies, and the government to have people around who speak more than English, I'm not going to disagree with you. It's when you say that they must be bilingual (laughs) and that they must know French and that... They must be there, and it must be entrenched in the Constitution. Then I don't agree with you. Well, I didn't say that it must be entrenched in the Constitution. Okay, so when... Okay, so then you and I may not agree on that. Canada is not an English country. Manitoba is not an English province. Nor is Canada a French country, nor Manitoba a French province, nor is Quebec a French province. This is a bilingual country that happens to have two official languages. The future is shaping before us. We're building the Canadian culture. Was Lester Pearson bilingual? That was yesterday. Was John Diefenbaker bilingual? That was yesterday. Was Sterling Lyon bilingual? Is Howard Pauly bilingual? All those who maintain they are going to stay English are going to come the way of the dodo bird and the dinosaur. Coming up, it's going to be a different country with bilingualism. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, so... We should go back to calling people dodo birds more often. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a long time. I feel time. like Dern really thought he had a winning response with, was Lester Pearson bilingual? <laughs> People care a lot about Lester Pearson. <laughs> For some reason, I also really loved the question mark at the end of when he asks why we should have 250 bilingual receptionists and Faure is like, because Manitoba is a bilingual province? Question right. mark. <laughs> it's just so like, I can read the sarcasm. <laughs> um, so... Um, Yeah, you can really see the, like, misinformation that's crept into everything here. Like, Foray's not arguing for a lot of this stuff, but Dern seems to think he is. Yeah, and this is a really interesting thing um, that Hébert talked about as well, which is that on some things, Foray actually kind of agrees with people like Dern. So he was, uh, for instance, there was... uh... Peter Warren, who ran a, a radio program then very popular, intended to be anti-francophone, uh, call in a uh, call-in program, and uh, and uh, Fore ended up, you know, he and and Fore ended up agreeing on a lot of things. So, you know, it gives you an idea. Like, in other words, he was constantly making statements that made headlines, but that that contradicted the position of the French language community because he didn't agree with it. So he, he just became a, an irritant uh, after after 79. <clears throat> so right, it that, seems like there's sort of some 
prays for him, you know, uh, when, uh, of course, when he wins in the Supreme Court. And then does that yes. goodwill well, kind of, does that goodwill kind of die down pretty quickly, do you think? Well, it, it did in the French community, that's for sure. And, mm -hmm. and he became viewed as a radical, a radical figure in the, uh, in, in Manitoba at large, you know, he, because his, his, his demands were, I would say, extreme. But at the same time, he they were aligned with, <laughs> he aligned himself in effect with the anti-Francophone forces who said, no, this shouldn't be negotiated. This shouldn't be a subject of negotiation between the two levels of government and the SFM. It should go straight to the Supreme Court. And he was confident that the Supreme Court would give him, would, would agree with his interpretation of Section 23. And I and most of the Francophone community at the time were not convinced at all that his interpretation, which I call radical bilingualism, would have survived in the in the Supreme Court. Yeah, so Ferré actually agrees with them that there should not be a constitutional amendment, though he kind of like goes flip-flops on this a little bit, depending on the day. <laughs> Um, it's a big topic. Yeah, so he's found himself sort of between sides here, and these are almost sort of parallel figures in some way, right? These are both people who have managed to, like, alienate people who were previously or could be allies because they came down so strongly on this issue. Right. Um, and, you know, due to the intensity of their principles. Um, yeah, I don't know. I find Dern an, an interesting guy as well because he really... Um, through his, you know, through his, I can't think of the word, through his laudan, uh, with this cause. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think from a 2023 perspective, you're kind of like, on this? Really? Like the bilingualism thing? So, um, in the meantime, the government has been given this deadline by the Supreme Court to work this out and negotiations have just completely fallen apart. Um, on the francophone side, some people also are starting to actually get annoyed with the SFM, including Ferré, because they're resenting that they're acting as the sole representative of Franco-Manitobans, right. which, you know, that's always an issue. Like, I know that's sometimes an issue with, like, the Manitoba Métis Federation, for instance, mm -hmm. right? It's it's hard to say that, like, oh, this is the only body that gets to right, yeah. argue on behalf of this group of people. Um, and on the anglophone opposition side, Duran and Lyon, they succeed, of course, in getting their legislative hearings. Um... They also managed to push for a plebiscite in Winnipeg. Oh, I love a plebiscite. Oh, right? <laughs> those, those always make everything go well. Oh, boy. Maybe we should do one on, like, I don't know, like, opening an intersection or... Oh, yeah. And what the... A public pleb plebiscite on that? Yeah. Public. <laughs> a public. A public publisher. <laughs> um, so there are, there's a debate actually between uh, Dern and Leo Robert, who again is the president of the SFM. Um, Dern calls the amendment a backroom deal and he calls French a dead language, which is Oh, wild. that's bold. Yeah. Um, and ultimately Winnipeggers, like Dern is on the side of most Winnipeggers, though, actually. Really? Okay. They vote overwhelmingly against the constitutional amendment, like 80%. Well, this is the thing also with like plebiscites, too, is you really get a sense of which areas stand on which issues. Yes. Yeah. Which might also be interesting in the case of a specific intersection. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hey, and I mean, this is always the interesting thing about like, the rights of any minority group is that like yeah if you try to do it as a democratic process that might actually not go so well in a lot of cases right. um 
Now, this isn't a binding referendum. They could still do it, but the provincial government does kind of try to push it forward. It just doesn't happen, is the reality. Um, that means that the Supreme Court case continues. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's a real Winnipeg story, isn't it? To be like... We, we fought about it too long. <laughs> and now everyone's confused and angry. Yeah. We did too many studies. <laughs> we did too many hearings and plebiscites and just nothing happened. Um, so technically, Billado actually loses his case. So the Supreme Court... Um, they say that his summons didn't necessarily need to be in both languages, which is a little confusing to me, but... Well, after the previous case. Yes, but they do, which makes it more confusing, but they do agree that the Highway Traffic Act is invalid. Really? Yes. <laughs> they agree that the Manitoba Act doesn't just say that laws should be in both languages, that shall means must. Um, and therefore... Well, I'm glad we came to a consensus on the definition of shall. <laughs> Therefore, every law passed in Manitoba since 1890 is invalid. <laughs> oh my god. What a, like, a nightmare scenario. However, okay, however, to avoid, quote, legal chaos, <laughs> they rule that there will be a grace period. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is to allow Manitoba to translate and reenact its laws. Okay. Um... And, like, I, don't, I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of, there is still all kinds of chaos around this. Like, some organizations that have, like, a provincial charter are like, do we not exist anymore? <laughs> like, there's, you know, yeah. all kinds of ramifications. But, um, yeah, that's sort of the end of the crisis. Um, the question of French services, though, ha hadn't really been resolved, right? And mm -hmm. that is actually resolved in a very boring way. Oh, yeah? By uh, new conservative premier Gary Philman. Uh, which is a bit ironic since the PCs had been in such opposition to the amendment. Right. So he introduces a policy, not even a law. It's just a governmental policy, which proposes the following, that all correspondence to be done in the um, official language preferred by the recipient, all forms, documents, and certificates were to be bilingual, signs and public notices were to be bilingual, and that certain services, so things like social services and healthcare were to be available in French, in French-speaking areas. Makes sense. Pretty sensible. And that, I mean, there have been some changes. I think there was maybe a quite recently some new stuff passed, but that's more or less what we still have. And that wasn't even, I guess, that long ago, because Philman's administration started, like... So, like, the 90s? 90s? Yeah, because yeah. my dad worked for the Philman government. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what they introduced in the 90s, and we were kind of all like, yeah, maybe we didn't have to fight that hard right. about it. <laughs> Maybe we burned down a building over nothing. Wow, that would be crazy. <laughs> Winnipeggers have never done that before. Um, but yeah, so that's that's really the end of the crisis. Um, and Faré, as for him, he passes away in 1990, actually at a Festival de Voyager banquet. Really? Which, if oh, you God. you know, but like if you gotta go. Yeah, that's true. It's a pretty good way to go. You know, at a place surrounded by people you love and a thing that you cause that you care about. And a thing that you started. Yeah. A little scary for the other people there, probably. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, very upsetting. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So when I talked to Raymond Hébert, his take is that Faré's legacy is complicated. Um, that in some ways he may have harmed the cause by kind of turning people off just because he was so intense about things. Um, but I, I like, I don't know. My 
position is that it's it's hard to be polite to people who want to deny or roll back your rights. People who are saying that your like language that you've spoken your whole life is a dead language. Yeah, like even if it's the like politically expedient or like sensible thing to be polite to that person, it's hard for me to fault someone who's like, no, that's just I right. can't do it. You know. Um. No, and I do think we need people like that because if everyone was being polite about this all the time that parking ticket would have gone to the supreme court 100 percent, yeah and you know of course we can't have everyone being like that all the time because then we can't have negotiations <laughs> then the world would be chaos like probably he's not the person you want in the room when you're trying to come to an agreement but to be fighting on your side for something yeah you know he's he's certainly got as as many people have told us the tenacity um and i think just about everyone agrees that he kicked off something that probably wouldn't have happened, at least not until much later, without him. Yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is not that long ago. No, it's really not. I mean, you know, like, I, I talked to Roger Bellado. He's, yeah. you know, people are, are still around who were involved in this. And yeah, then, and, like, I don't know, yeah. I grew up in a town that spoke English, and, like, my school didn't offer French. Yeah. We had a seventh grade French, but that was... Barely anything. Well, yeah, it was interesting. I wanted to I wanted to ask you a bit about this because from my point of view, so I was born in 93 um, and in the city, and it was really hard for me to understand even why this was, like, a point of contention. So, like, I went to an immersion school. Like, I remember my fifth grade teacher took us to St. Boniface to, like, learn French culture. Like, to me, this was all just, like, a benefit. This was um, a gift I was given that I got mm. to learn a second language. Um, and I had no idea this was something people fought so hard about. And then, like, also, it was only really becoming a law, like, what, a decade or two before you started school? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even less, potentially. And yeah. We're talking about, like, the Services Act specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So it had, you know, and by now I feel like it's kind of become a non-issue or, mm -hmm. or a very small issue. I don't know. Like, were people worried about bilingualism in Morris, Manitoba? No, they weren't worried about it. It just wasn't a service that was offered to sure. us. So, like, we had a... a DSFM school just south of us in St. Jean. Yeah. Where, like, people I know went to. It was a very tiny school, but, like, there was a French school nearby, so we knew French people pretty well. Mm -hmm. But the only French I was ever offered was seventh grade French taught by a teacher who was high. <laughs> Great. The entire time, he taught us um, how to say beer in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Let us watch Telefrancais mm. for um, months, and then when it came to the final exam... He stood up in the middle of it and said, I am going to the principal's office. I will be gone for about 20 minutes. Don't cheat. Huh. And then, like, walked out of the room. <laughs> and then we all cheated. Yeah. And then he comes back and down the hallway, he says, I'm coming back. Everyone better be in their seats. <laughs> so I passed my seventh grade French exam, but, like, I did not know any French. I mean, that's the kind of teacher that you love when you're in that grade. And then later you're like, what? been nice to actually learn French though. He was my homeroom teacher. He taught me English. Yeah. <laughs> he taught me history. Oh man. He was a wild guy. We yeah. watched um Gladiator at one point <laughs> for no reason. Uh-huh. Also like he was showing us pretty consistently R-rated movies. Which I learned later you're supposed to send permission slips home for so the parents can consent to being shown like it from the 80s mm -hmm. and he was just showing us whatever he felt like that day well it's based on a book yeah exactly <laughs> so that's why we watched the shining and then the making of the shining really in in grade 10 english oh class my God. and mostly because our teacher was just a big jack nicholson fan yeah and he would pause it and just be like yeah 
and then unpause <laughs> it like he was super into it i remember one time in sixth grade our teacher was playing it was something it wasn't gladiator but it was something like that something mm-hmm. set in like ancient times and there was a single bare butt on the screen she oh, immediately this was troy okay there you go she immediately turned it off and was like nope we're watching something because that happened to my brother's class in uh. high school <laughs> I actually had a, uh, when I was in grade four, there was a new school built down the street and it was a, a French and an English school. So it was split. Mm-hmm. And so the biggest point of contention was that the French kids in whatever grade got to go to Quebec. Oh. And the English kids, we had no trip. And this- so I just remember a lot of parents getting mad on our behalf. And we were just like, whatever. Yeah. Like, we have no concept of going to Quebec or not, right? <laughs> Actually, that's funny you say that because we did have a little... So I went to an elementary school that had um, a French immersion stream and an English language stream. And we did have a little bit of a rivalry going. We used to... They'd call us French fries and we'd call them English muffins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did also get to go to Quebec. <laughs> yeah. And this is why we can't be friends anymore. Alex. Oh, man. <laughs> I did not get to go to Quebec either. I mean, we had to pay for it, but it was, you know. It was still we went fun. to Minneapolis, though, for a band trip once. But that had nothing to do with the language we were learning. Yeah. It's because we were doing, like, a little, like, high school band tour. I went nowhere. I was never in band. Like, I went to the museum once. Band was the place like... to be for trips. Band or sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The hockey team got to go all over the place. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember ever being, like that big yeah of we got thing. way off track there but no, no. <laughs> i don't remember it being that big of a thing and then i went to like i don't know i went to the university of winnipeg and things were often in french and in english yeah yeah i took i took french classes also at the u of w i've never thought it was that exceptional <laughs> no it it certainly throughout my life it never seemed like an issue i was surprised about the kind of vociferousness when, of some of i was telling opposition. someone about like the episode we were doing on this and mm-hmm. like the parking ticket and blah 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 and they were like when did that even happen and i said oh like the 70s and they thought it was like probably 30 years earlier than that yeah i mean it seems like such a guaranteed thing that we have now yeah and i had asked my dad about this because he would have been you know in his early 20s when this was going on and he had no memory of any of this happening i'll have to ask my partner's parents yeah later but they they probably remember more of it is my guess i'm gonna find out yeah yeah we'll see (laughs) But, um, yeah, I wanted to end on something that really interesting that uh, Roger Bilodeau said to me. But then you have uh, people like yourself, and there are many now. And I, and even at that time, I, I said to myself and to a few close friends or people that I knew that I really felt that the future of the French language in Manitoba depended more on how many francophiles or how many people we can get to understand the the language and the culture and how they can become involved in the community to some extent. And it, it, uh, to me, the, that component of the population was almost more important than the actual francophone population per se. And so in terms of understanding and trying to move this issue forward, I think we need as many, many as as we can. Yeah, so I think, you know, in that capacity as, you know, almost, you know, he, he said sort of francophones, but I think sort of francophone ally or francoph- francophiles was the term he used, but sort of francophone allies almost, you know, <laughs> people who will get engaged in that community without necessarily being a part of it. Yeah. In that capacity, I think about um, Festival again. Right, yeah. And what it represents 
as also a really important part of Faré's legacy. You know, it was way back at the beginning of the episode, kind of gets lost in all of this, but, you know, he helped to create a space where Franco-Manitoban culture could be celebrated and not just by Francophones. It's, it's really something that invites everyone in. Oh, yeah, it's like the go-to winter festival. Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking about even, you know, places like A La Page or like Café Postal or the St. Boniface Museum. There are all these neat places that celebrate, um, that, like celebrate francophone culture that serve francophones and also invite in anglophones yeah i love cafe postal yeah every time i go through saint boniface i make a pit stop (laughs) yeah so i think you know all of this sort of legally wrangling is really important but that stuff is really important too that's the stuff that makes me feel kind of connected to uh, people in our city who have had a different life than than i have yeah and i know it's something that like when people travel here they often go to like saint boniface and we'll talk about like culture and stuff Mm -hmm. like it stands out still it's part of what makes winnipeg so unique it really is yeah and yeah it's interesting that doesn't seem to have been like a huge part of the discussion then but no but also i think a lot of the discussion really hinged on legal stuff yes no but yeah we we love francophones very important (laughs) part of our city and our (laughs) province and uh yeah can I tell you something? I was terrified that the thing you sent me was going to make me um, speak French as, like, a cruel prank. <laughs> I would not do that to you. Oh, no, man. it's something I would do to you, and yeah. I think that's where I was getting confused. <laughs> I thought so, you would trick me and make me sound stupid. No, I did not trick you. Um, but, uh, yeah, so thank you to uh, Raymond Hébert and Roger Bellado. Um I've had to abbreviate, by the way, a lot of legal and political wranglings to make this into kind of a <laughs> short-ish, coherent story. So if people are interested in a fuller story, they should read Hébert's book, um, Manitoba's French Language Crisis. Um, I also want to shout out Annie Langlois. She's currently working on a Georges Ferré exhibit. For the St. Boniface Historical Society, she sent me some super awesome archival resources. I don't think that exhibit is, like, done yet, but hopefully we can share some information when it is. We'll go check it out when it opens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We also want to thank the Manitoba Historical Society, the Winnipeg Foundation Centennial Institute, and the Manitoba Heritage Grant Program for supporting this series. Um, If you would like to support us and get uh, all of our bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash onegreathistory. I think in the bonus episode, we're going to talk about the social credit party. Yes, please, because I'm so curious. Yes, and also I think a little more about Russell Dern. Um, yeah, and you can also follow us follow us on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History and on Twitter at the number One Great History. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, no. Did my iPad freeze? It's decided you're done. Sorry, one second. (laughs) The episode's over.